0: The Lions of Liberty Podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome once again to the good old LOLP. That's right. The Lions of Liberty Podcast. I am thrilled to have you back in here with me in the Lions of Liberty studios to do what we do best, or at least what we do, and that is discuss the ideas of liberty. Now, one thing you'll often hear if you kind of uh, roll in libertarian circles like I do is this issue of infighting. You'll hear things like, oh, us libertarians, we're always infighting. We just need to put our differences aside and come together because we already agree on 95% of things. So we should just shut up, have a picnic, uh, you know, agree to vote for Rand Paul and move on with our lives. But now, boy, do I have a problem with that attitude because people will just lump this term differences in as if differences are just this minor little you know piece of lint that it should just be brushed off as if they're just meaningless differences that have no effect on the outcomes of the type of things we're advocating now but if you're trying to change the world And from what I can gather, that's what a good number of libertarians and liberty activists are in fact trying to do, to change the way humans interact with each other, to advocate for more justice in the world. We are trying to change the world and change it for the better. Now, if you're trying to change the world, well, you damn well better have a consistent view to present to other people a consistently principled view. Because without that, what are you even selling to people? You're just selling people a series of random policies based on, well, we don't even know what, if you can't fully explain it. So it's absolutely vital to work out those differences, not through just meaningless rhetoric and verbal stone-throwing, you know, not that kind of infighting, because that stuff is meaningless, but through intellectual debate, through using logic and reason. One of the biggest battles you'll see if you follow us libertarian circles much, is this whole anarchy versus minarchy debate, battle, war, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, Some people are tried and true anarchists and they just say, you know, you, we cannot have government of any kind because it's simply too dangerous to exist. And they will continue to point out rightfully all of the bad things that government has done, that government currently does, and say, look, we can't have that. And they're right, we can't have that. We definitely can't have any organization, whether it's government, a gang, or what have you, running around violating people's rights. And then you have minarchists, on the other hand, who will argue that, no, we actually do need government because we need it to defend individual rights, because without it, it's just going to be, quote unquote, anarchy, and it's going to be crazy, and people are just going to have their rights violated all over the place because there's going to be no government to stop them from doing so. The problem with the minarchist argument is that in that very same breath, when they'll say we need this institution to defend individual rights, they will also argue that that institution can be created by violating individual rights. I'm not saying that's true of all minarchists, but it is a common sort of argument we'll hear that governments can be formed, but they won't really talk about how specifically those governments can rightfully be formed without violating individual rights And if an institution is going to be formed to defend individual rights by violating people's individual rights, well, you're, again, starting off with a very inconsistent philosophy, a very inconsistent platform in the first place. And that's just not going to get you anywhere. And my guest today has written an essay where he has really made an attempt to address a lot of the problems with both of these arguments. And, you know, I, although the essay itself is called Against Anarchism, and I know that's going to get a lot of anarchists out there and a bit of a tizzy, but I encourage you guys to hang on for the ride with us, listen to the actual arguments, and hey, if you have objections, by all means, <laughs> come forward and present them to us and keep this conversation going. That's what we're all about here. We're all about the conversation. We encourage you to join the conversation by hopping over to our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us over on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. You know, I got to get my plugs in, guys. It's just what I got to do. But now, before I get into this essay against anarchism, I do want to just take a second to read a quote from the beginning of this essay that kind of sums up really the reasons why I think we need to have this discussion in the first place. It is a curious thing that individuals starting from the same premises... A shared belief in the sovereignty of the individual, of the rightness of natural rights, of the banning of the initiation of physical force in human relations, can reach such strikingly contradictory conclusions as that of anarchism versus minarchism. Indeed, it is embarrassing and discrediting to the libertarian movement that could emit basic theories in such wild disagreement with one another. It would be tantamount to some astronomers claiming that the Earth goes around the sun, and others claiming that the sun goes around the Earth— or some mathematicians claiming that two plus two equals four and others claiming that it's eight if we cannot as advocates of individual liberty paint a coherent vision of what it means for man to be free then how can we expect the rest of humanity to bother with our ideas and i will now bring in the man who wrote those words he is the author of two books for Individual Rights, as well as Reason and Liberty, the Foundations of Civilization, which we have discussed on this show way back in Episode 2. You can, of course, find that at the archives at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. His current writing can be found at his blog, forindividualrights.com. He is also the author of the essay, which we will be discussing today, entitled Against Anarchism. Shane Whistler, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks for me, Mark. Well, sure thing, Shane, and it's not very often I get to welcome someone back. So, you know, congratulations on being in the elite group of people who have been invited back for a second episode here in our first 42 weeks or so. But, you know, I wanted to have you back on because I think, you know, I have read this essay of yours against anarchism and, you know, full disclosure out there for the people listening. I'll, I'll, I can say right now, I, I pretty much largely agree with everything you've written here. Uh, and you come at things from a different way than, you know, a lot of the criticisms of anarchism we typically hear out there. And you know I think a lot of people are going to hear the title of the essay, a lot of people that might listen to this show and immediately kind of go into fits and think, oh, this guy's a statist, this guy's a fascist, or maybe even worse, a minarchist. But, you know, I th- your objections to anarchism, I think people will find if they actually give them a chance, are vastly different than the typical argument they're going to get from a statist or a minarchist or what have you. So... What kind of inspired you to take the time out after you'd already written a book about four individual rights? Why did you take the time out to specifically write this essay? What problems were you seeing out there that you felt this needed to be addressed?
1: Well, I, I wrote it for two reasons, I guess. The one reason was because in my book, For Individual Rights, uh, I came not to be satisfied with what I'd written there. So I, I thought it needed more treatment than that. Also, I'd see a lot of anarchists who like to put a badge on saying that they're, they're consistent. And so that they're the principled ones, and that the people who are for government are the inconsistent ones. And it seems to be a trend, and so uh, it seems important to me. And also, I've, you know, I've been in debates with anarchists and talking to them and, and just bumping into all the different arguments that they put forth and just decided to consolidate them into an essay.
0: All right, now I want to make sure we get our terms straight here. And, you know, so let's just define, first of all, what is the definition of anarchism overall that you are, I guess, combating here?
1: First of all, anarchy in the sense I define it uh, isn't a bad thing per se. It just means you don't have a government, which could happen like on a desert island or something like that. Uh, just because you have people who stranded on an island and they, they happen to have no government doesn't mean it's bad it just means they haven't uh, built something yet it's like they don't have a car yet in the essay compared to you know they haven't created a car so it just means a lack of a formal institution has been created you know define and identify and adjudicate uh, laws
0: and you also break down anarchism into two types you have what you would call a true anarchist and a semantic anarchist so can you differentiate between those two type of anarchists as you see them
1: yeah a true anarchist as I define it, there would be somebody who wants to eradicate institutions of government. And I think you know many anarchists don't really fit into that category. Uh, really what it comes down to is semantics. The semantic anarchist, he doesn't like the way people use the word government. And he wants to retain the word government or state. So, some anarchists are different. There's anarchists that hate the word government. There's also anarchists that are okay with the word government, and they hate the word state. And what they do is they're essentially taking any evil action that any government ever does, and then they bundle it with that term. And it comes down to a disagreement about how you should define your terms. And many of these anarchists tend to think it's not important how we define terms. At the same time as they're insisting that it's anarchism, they'll say it's all all semantics, and so therefore it doesn't matter. A lot of people in our culture think semantics doesn't matter. I think it's critically important. I think think you, you should rationally debate about what the term should be, a lot of people just don't think it's important. So the semantic is, I think, maybe the bigger category. But there are a true people who I'd call true anarchists, would be like uh, Walter Block. Now, he's, he's kind of a mixed case, but in the end I call him a true anarchist because he would be against forming what I'd call a city-state. He thinks he should be able to unilaterally secede Whereas there's a lot of anarchists that would agree with easements or restrictive covenants or homeowner associations, where you shouldn't be able to secede, where because you, you agreed ahead of time, so you have to sell your property.
0: Yeah, sure. And one of the things you mentioned there, you know, talking about definitions, was that the word government or even the word state, where you know a lot of people hear that word and they immediately associate it with all the terrible things that we've seen governments do in in modern times, violating rights, taxing without consent, you know, imperial wars, the war on drugs, all of these awful things that, you know, we all agree, at least uh, the two of us and most people out there listening agree are are, are absolutely terrible and affronts to individual rights, but they immediately associate that word government with all of that. And yeah, this is something I discussed with Adam Kokesh a couple weeks ago. Just to clear up What you actually mean when you say government, what's your definition of government that you use, and and why do you stick to that definition as opposed to the the definition where it's immediately lumped in with all of these terrible things?
1: I think the one that that lumps in with the terrible things is just, it's kind of an anti-intellectual, knee-jerk, kind of emotional response to, to all the bad things that we see governments, you know, that they tend to do. So I, I don't view that as a very serious thing. I, I think when people are pressed about it, when I've debated them, I haven't found any substance uh, behind why they're defining it that way. The way I define it would be an institution that's formally, you know, purposely, consciously designing laws about, you know, what should the rules be and then uh, enforcing them in some area. And The area could be a small area, it could be like, an apartment complex, it could be a city-state, it could even be a federal type of jurisdiction, and that gets into federations versus city-states, which is a a very important distinction. One of the reasons why we have these debates is because people don't recognize the distinction between applying legislation to your own property, which you can build a city-state out of your own property and you can apply laws there and you can argue that, well, since it's our property and we all agree on these things we can do we can make all these sorts of different laws versus a federal type of jurisdiction which applies it you know universally to everyone living in this big geographic area so that you're very limited to what you can do federally but you you're not limited to nothing you're limited to uh individual rights
0: right and and this is the point where if you kind of try to describe this to some people out there Um, they'll, they'll kind of hear this term federal and they'll start thinking, oh, well, now, now we're going too far. You know, even if I could have been with you on this maybe small sort of city state kind of thing where, you know, individual property owners live next to each other. They form their own set of rules like. A lot of people will see how that makes sense. And then when you bring in this federal thing, that's when they'll, the, the conniptions will really start because they'll say, Oh, well, you know, if you have this big federal government, it's just bound to violate rights. It's bound to, you know, turn into this tyrannical government like our, our current, you know, government in the United States in many ways acts. So what do you say to that objection when you hear that from people that it's just, you know, when you start bringing in this federal level of things, it's just going to get out of hand?
1: Well, there's a historically interesting thing there. Back when the Articles of Confederation were the law of the land, and the Constitution was being brought up. These so-called Federalists were capitalizing on a general sentiment at the time, which was that the proper kind of government was a federal government. And what they meant by that was it was a voluntary federation of the states, where they were just joining together to do some limited things to protect themselves from like foreign aggressors and things like that. And then they they painted the Anti-Federalists, you know, as Anti-Federalists. But the the fact of the matter was, and this was pointed out at the time, that the ones who were called the Federalists had dishonestly usurped the term. And really the Anti-Federalists were the Federalists. So the ones that were for limited, what was called limited government, truly should be called Federalists. The ones that were called Federalists should really be called Nationalists. Because they're for a national government, and I think and what, how I would define a national government would be you're trying to create a whole bunch of arbitrary laws like, for example, education, you know, legislation about education standards, which should be a local government issue if it is a government issue. And so really we should be calling these, it's nationalism versus federalism. That's kind of a historic perversion of the term. But that also explains why people are so, it's an emotional thing when you say federal because they've associated federal with nationalism and the national government and they don't like that and i'm just trying to be precise here with the terms and i'm kind of ignoring the historical connotation but i think it comes down to they're mad they're just emotional about what the federal government has done which is you know a lot of what they've done is wrong and so they just not being careful
0: right yeah there's really been a a twisting of the words historically that has gone on for some time here and and that twisting of the words has come up into the modern day where people still see the word federal as really meaning a government that enforces itself over a large swath of land over even areas where people have not consented to its jurisdiction, where people have not consented to uh, the sort of man-made laws of the federal government and that kind of thing. And, and one, one point that I think we should probably hit on there is, is the distinction you make between natural law versus man-made law. So can you describe those distinctions and how they would fit into that city-state versus federal model? Like, you know what governments. Would be allowed to do and what they would not be allowed to do, or as terms of you know applying laws to people outside of their jurisdiction.
1: Yeah, in the essay by natural law, I mean, I'm trying to use it in a very general sense. All I mean is like non-initiation of force, non-aggression, or individual rights, or how any libertarian might put the term. I'm not trying to quibble over exactly what it should mean. I'm just trying to say that there are some universal truths about how people should behave with regard to each other. They shouldn't murder, they shouldn't steal, they shouldn't rape. That's what I call natural law. Man-made law is what I call like a speeding limit or noise ordinances where uh, if you own the property, you can say, hey, this is my property and I don't want you driving faster than 25 miles per hour. That's a man-made law on your property. And it can be okay assuming it's your property and assuming you've justly acquired a property. And so the way I see a a city-state... Is you can form it by aggregating justly acquired property, and the people in the area, if they consent to it, they can create they can create a little regime of uh, man-made laws. So long as those man-made laws do not violate the natural law. You can't make a, a man-made law that says, "Oh, I get to kidnap children whenever I want if you walk on my, you, you trespass on my property, that violates natural law. The other thing is is that a, a man-made law, since it's rooted in property rights, can be monopolistic in the sense that, you know, you if somebody else wanted to enforce different man-made laws on your property, that would violate your rights. Whereas natural law can be, you know, instituted by anybody who wants to do it. So that's why, like, at the federal level, you know, I believe a, a federation of of city states is a an efficient way of uh, of building a government to like protect people's individual rights in a big area. But there's nothing that you can, there's no principle that says that the, there has to only be one federation. There could be a few federations. I think a tendency might be to have one because it might be efficient, but you can't, and this is where minarchists fall, where they become incoherent, is that they say that there has to be a geographic monopoly at the federal level, and I think there could be a practical monopoly that might turn out to be the, the thing that everybody chooses. But you can't stop somebody else from protecting someone's, you know, rights. Uh, that would be a violation of, of somebody's rights. And the minarchists fall down on that principle and essentially become nationalists because they're banning the creation of a federal type of government that isn't violating anybody's rights, and they're just, they're just banning that. So so I get in trouble with both the minarchists and the anarchists because the anarchists don't like me to say that I can make a federal government like like we have now, well, similar to like, have what we have now. And the Minarchists don't like it because I say that, well, you could have competing federal government so long as it doesn't violate anybody's rights. So they both they both get mad at me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, when you're making people mad, you must be doing right, doing something right out there. That, that's what I've always found. Uh, it means you're hitting on some points, and if, if people are getting angry instead of just, you know, reasonably objecting to the points, well, then that, that kind of shows something. You know, one term you kind of addressed there in a little bit, it's a term you, you, we often hear in libertarian circles, and it, it pretty much is a term that a lot of libertarians will use to describe government or describe the state, and that is the term monopoly on force, that where, um, they say a government is an entity that has a monopoly on force over a given certain area, and under that definition, it sounds like government is always going to be something that violates rights if it's just seizing a monopoly over a certain area. But um, you kind of dismantle that term a little bit in your essay. So can you address on that a little bit? Why is the term monopoly on force a faulty one?
1: Yeah, that's a an interesting uh, issue because, like, I have speaking of anarchists getting mad at me, <laughs> I have never gotten more angry as when I disagree with them about monopoly on you know government is a monopoly on force. Uh, I had one anarchist; it looked like he was almost ready to punch me <laughs> at one
0: point. He wanted to monopolize force on your face, I guess, huh? Yeah. The issue is, I think a monopoly is a
1: myth. Uh, I think all there is is attempted monopolies on force. I mean, certainly our current federal government is generally thinking that they have a monopoly on force. They're attempting a monopoly on force. I think an attempted monopoly on force is a crime. And the reason why is because you can't prevent somebody else from protecting another person's rights. So you can't say, well, you can't help that person. And our federal government doesn't even do it consistently. If you are in a self-defense situation, you can protect yourself, and the government recognizes that as being okay. So there's an example of where they don't actually really technically have monopoly on force. They don't even say they do. What they're against is is if you come out and advertise your, you know, that you're going to do that, or if you plan on doing it, or you set up a, an institution for doing it, then they will come and they will... Sometimes they'll attack you, sometimes they won't. If it's a security agency, you could set up a private security agency, and assuming you have the permission to do it, they'll let you do it. You can have private adjudication. A different type of issue is, you know, there's no monopoly on force in the oceans. There's just, uh, there's international waters, and, and they work it out between themselves about how they're going to do it. Really what I think monopoly of force comes down to is just an apparent monopoly which is just the underlying strength of some particular government agency of enforcing its edicts. But you will have that so-called monopoly in any system you come up with. There will always be you know some party or parties that are the strongest in some area and they will have their, the final judgment call if they want to. But that isn't that isn't a monopoly in the sense that they mean it.
0: Yeah another real sticking point We'll often hit on when discussing the uh, subject of people, you know, voluntarily forming governments is the topic of secession. People will say, you know, if unless you're going to allow secession 100 percent of the time under 100 percent of the circumstances, ultimately, you're just another, you know, tyrant, another another fascist or what have you. But can you kind of describe in what circumstances do you see secession as being legitimate and why it's perfectly consistent to say that in some circumstances it would not necessarily be allowed, at least not, you know, just outright secession.
1: Yeah, this is complex. So in a city state scenario, if we scale it down to the smallest level, you can just think of two people, you know, to pick a a kind of silly contrived example, they built a, a shared house and they joined their land together and they built like a barn that crosses both their property and maybe in the upfront they've agreed. Well, if we find we can't get along, the only way to get out of this joint arrangement we've made is to sell your your share to somebody else. Now the alternative would be that the person who who has one half of the barn if he succeeds. He can like cut the barn in half or something like that, or like destroy the barn. They could set that up if they want to, but it probably doesn't make any sense. The point is you can create you know city states that have like sewers and infrastructure that's shared, you know, electrical lines and egress rights and all these things. And so in that sense, you're kind of giving right to your neighbors to, you know, maintain their sewer line on your and they have to come on your property to do it. In that situation, secession is illegitimate. And if you actually, you know, tried to secede and you you like didn't let them come repair their sewer line or whatever, you would basically be the thief if you try to secede in that situation. So that's an example where secession is not is not proper. It's not consistent with individual rights. Another example is, let's say, you have a federation of city-states. So you have a bunch of city-states, and they create a federal government. Federal government is instituted to protect rights. And one of the city-states says, hey, we want to set up a theocracy here, and we want to start violating people's rights. Like maybe they want to put have slavery or something like that. And so we're going to get out of this federal government. We're going to secede from it. Because we want slavery, or we want, you know, child, we want to marry children, or whatever thing they want to do that that you could argue is violation of rights. In that scenario, they can stop paying their dues if they want to. They can secede in the sense that they're not going to fund the federation anymore. But they can't secede in the sense that they can rightly prevent the, the rest of the federation to come in and stop them from violating the rights of their own citizens. You know, especially children, uh, but anybody who's not consenting to things the theocracy might do to them, uh, they can't secede from justice, is basically what it comes down to, in that sense. You, you might be able to secede in the sense you're not going to help institute justice anymore with that federation, but you can't secede from justice. And so, in that sense, a lot of anarchists, you know, the, uh, the non-interventionists, you know, as a matter of principle, you know, I'm going to disagree that with their non-intervention policy, actually intervention in principle is a good thing if it's actually to protect rights. Now, in our current situation, you could argue that the U.S. government isn't actually pursuing justice when they intervene, but uh, that's not the principle. That's that's just, you should argue that what they're intervening for the wrong reason, you shouldn't argue against intervention per se, because intervention is just instituting justice if it's done the right way. So, So those are two examples of where secession is not actually legitimate.
0: Yeah, it's really making the distinction between, you know, yes, people are allowed to freely associate and therefore, you know, break any associations that they have, but they can't actually break a contract they have. So if they have a contract regarding their sewer lines or their streets or something like that, for them to secede in that manner and violate the contract – is really makes them the rights violator, unless they just secede in the sense that if they sell their property and leave the area you know there are, are peaceful ways to do it and ways that aren't going to violate the agreements that they you know originally got into so I, th- I think it's an important distinction to make. Now, uh, you kind of got into some stuff there that I know is going to get some more libertarian panties in a bunch, uh, talking about non-intervention and, you know, how you're not necessarily opposed to that concept. So, you know, uh, and I think this is kind of the the national sovereignty thing or the states' rights thing will, where people will say you can't go and invade states just because they want to keep slavery or you can't go and invade another country just because there are human rights violations there. So can you d- go a little more into why this the general concept of, you know, it's one of the objections I know you hear a lot is that it's illegitimate to just enforce natural law everywhere because people aren't necessarily consenting to the jurisdiction in that, in that situation. So can you explain why that's a fallacy?
1: Yeah, this, this will cause a lot of heartburn, but I get confused as to why it's so problematic. So I don't know if I can explain it you know, so, so people will agree, but I'll try to. To pick a small example, if there's a, a woman next door and somebody, you see somebody break into her house and she's being raped, You know, can you break into her house and violate her property rights, so to speak, and go in there and save her, even though she doesn't know you're entering? Do you have to ask her permission to come save her? In any case, it's the fact that her rights are being violated is giving you a license to go protect her. And you can form an institution that says, hey, if somebody's rights are being violated, we will go punish the aggressors or the rights violators and um, protect them. And to me, that's kind of a, it's elementary, it's an elementary fact, and I'm not, I actually don't know what you, how you can argue against it, although I i don't retain the weird arguments. You'd probably have to give me an argument against it, so I, I really don't know how, what to say. It's kind of, it's just bizarre that somebody would say, oh, these people are being burned, uh, stoned to death, and all these things, and you don't have a right to go protect them. Maybe what they'll say is that, well, I didn't want to fund that. That's not what my government, you know, the United States government is not their, it's not their prerogative because they're taxing me to go do this, and so I don't want to pay for this, etc., etc. Well, in that case, the problem is that you're being taxed without your consent, and so uh, I would say fix that problem. I would focus on the problem, which is that you're being taxed without your consent, but there's no problem if the like, majority of Americans wants to stop stoning in some foreign country. There's no problem in principle with them going and stopping it there's a problem that they tax you to go do it and you don't want to participate that's the problem so focus on the real problem
0: right it's, it's really the difference between differentiating our current situation where you know a lot of the objections to intervention in other countries It really ultimately does come down to the situation where they, you know, I think a lot of people will see that, yes, we have a a lot of evidence that the U.S. government is not very consistent in their support for individual rights. They certainly, you know, they launch a war on drugs at home. They spy on us here at home. So we have no real reason to believe their motivations overseas. And at the same time, there's plenty of evidence that they are, are often fabricating evidence to, you know, go overseas and that they're really there for other reasons, whether it's oil or other geopolitical reasons or what have you. But that doesn't really speak to the actual principle, despite the fact that we can say our, our current government is clearly not genuine on this, you know, on a matter. It doesn't change the fact that people as a right would still have the absolute right to defend the individual rights of others, regardless of where those rights violations are occurring. So I think that's a very important distinction that you, that you continue to make.
1: I think that this kind of highlights a problem that we have as being pro-liberty idealists and advocating a world where there's liberty. To be an idealist or to believe, you know, which means believe that there's such a thing as a right and a wrong. It's a kind of a creative leap. It's a change of perspective. And um, people have a hard time imagining, you know, outside of the context that they were, you know, raised and born in and and all the media, you know. And and it requires being kind of a visionary and, and thinking, well, how should it be? And imagining all the different ways it should be. And then you try to move it to where it should be and I think a lot of people just lack the ability to see that. So, so they, they mix the two issues together. They mix the way things are, you know, with the way it should be, and they can't see. They don't see either one of them very clearly. And so, when you raise an issue like, well, I can go, you know, intervene if I'm protecting somebody's rights, they're only viewing it through the lens of the current context. But what we're trying to do is actually, you know, shift, you know, our you know, humanity to the better context. So we have to look, be able to imagine that better context and talk in terms of the principles that would govern in that general context, you know, that future context, and not be kind of just, you know, stuck, you know, only seeing as far as our nose in in the current situation. And that's a difficult issue.
0: Definitely. I mean, in a way, it's just as silly as, as decrying the concept of delivering mail just because the government currently has a monopoly on delivering mail and because they tax us coercively to create this postal system. Well, we all agree that the system that they're running might not be the proper way to deliver mail, but it doesn't mean that the concept of delivering mail is wrong or anything like that. You really have to separate, you know, what the government is doing and how they're doing it. And there are many things the government does, including, you know, the justice system, including enforcing certain laws against theft property, rape, and that kind of thing that are perfectly legitimate. We might think that the structure they've set up to do so is, is wrong, that it's poorly funded, that it's inefficient. There are many, many valid criticisms on that end, but the actual tasks that they're being assigned are not necessarily tasks that people shouldn't be partaking in. And I think it's a very important dis- distinction that you make. And that kind of leads us to discuss what you, something you address. And it's the general, you know, what you refer to as anarchist political tactics. It's what this kind of line of thought, that you can only be an anarchist, you can only have anarchism, leads to in terms of politics. So what are your biggest criticisms of what you would call the anarchist political tactics?
1: Boy, I guess the the biggest thing, at least on my mind at the moment, is that it tends to divide, it tends to alienate you from society. You tend to see everything as us versus them. And so you tend to ignore things that the government might do that are good you only focus on the things that they do are bad. So then, you know, the people who can appreciate those things that are good, you tend to alienate from them, and they, you tend to alienate them from you. Obviously, anarchism has been associated with violence and criminal activity. Many anarchists think it's one way to bring about a better world is to actually just act as if the government doesn't exist and then break laws. Generally, that's a bad idea because you're just hurting yourself. You're going to get, I mean, the law may be unjust, may very well well be right, but you're not going to be successful in the long run if that's how you're fighting the system. The the true battle is the battle of ideas and trying to get people to see this vision of a life where, you know, individual rights are respected by government in a consistent way. And so I I think what happens is the anarchist is basically fighting himself, and in the end, he's wasting his energy and just becoming you know, impotent and useless because they spend so much time fighting things they shouldn't be fighting, you know, instead of trying to lift humanity up and bring about a better vision, you know, they're just basically being, in a lot of cases, being punks, you know. Uh, So it's just self-defeating. It's not going to get them what they want. In some cases, the anarchists, you know, I'm not saying most anarchists are like this, but there are some anarchists that get so angry that they do violent things. And so that doesn't help bring about, you know, peace. That just makes the rest of humanity look at the anarchist views as, you know, crazy, criminal, sociopathic sort of things. So I'm not saying that most anarchists do that or, or like that. I'm just saying I think that the anarchist position tends to create that sort of anger that some some people lose control of their anger and go and do things like that.
0: Right. And this comes back to this issue that we've discussed on the show several times before, and that. That's the issue of who to blame for the atrocities that are committed by government. And so many people seem to just want to focus on this particular aspect of government that's doing something bad or or the actual enforcers of laws like the police when they're busting someone for pot or the specific TSA agent when he's, you know, maybe violating someone's rights at a checkpoint at at an airport or something. And it creates this attitude where anybody remotely affiliated with government is automatically evil. And like you said, it really creates this us versus them problem where, you know, and, and this is doesn't mean, obviously, I don't think that the people that did this were, were sort of, um, you know, rights upholding anarchists or anything. But, you know, we see like people like just go out and shoot police officers like in Las Vegas. And, you know, obviously those people don't really have a respect for individual rights, but many libertarians out there will even have the attitude that, well, hey, that's, that's okay. I mean, they are working for the state. They are by nature evil. And it's really, we're really not focusing on the right things to blame because Obviously, most people don't think those police officers are actively conducting evil because most people think that the laws they pass are generally you know, what need to be there. And that's really where we need to focus on our change. It's on the ideas of the people, the ideas of why is there war on drugs in the first place? You know, why are we funding things coercively and that sort of thing? And by simply focusing on those enforcers of the crimes or, you know, a particular aspect of those crimes, I think we really get away from principles. Is that will that kind of sum up, I guess, a lot of your view on that? I agree with that, uh,
1: but also there's this, what you might call a reification. The statists tend to reify the state. They tend to treat it like it's a god, right? So they, they worship the state, and they think that it transcends normal human laws, right? But they think it's some kind of entity unto itself, when really it's just a, an embodiment of their particular beliefs and actions, and it's a manifestation of themselves. So if the state does something bad, and they sanction it and they agree with it, they are participating. So that it's not exempting anybody from moral law. They're actually guilty. Okay? So anybody who is in favor of like say the drug laws, you know, the war on drugs, is essentially they're participating in a criminal action. They may have a right to their opinion, but you know, they are actually, you know, spreading evil around. And likewise the, the anarchist is just the flip side of the coin of that. He views the state as a demon, as an evil demon, and he disembodies it from the people who are acting as well. He basically lets the people who are doing it, who are supporting it, get away with it. He may not apply that to government agents, but he applies it to all of the populace, the 80% of the people who support this or that bad thing, who are actually, in my view, they are participating in crime. Now, I'm not saying what the punishment should be for that, I mean... Maybe the punishment should be that they get fined or something to rape, pay restitution. I, I mean, I don't know. That's a complex question. But, but I do think that they are aiding and abetting crime. And the anarchist tends to talk in terms of, like, everybody's a victim and government is the only perpetrator. You know, it's, they, they talk in terms of, it's like this disembodied demon. Like, the state thinks it's a god. They think it's a demon. And they're just furthering the same myth about the state as being some separate entity.
0: Right. I wrote an article a couple weeks ago, and I referred to that kind of attitude as the state as being Voldemort from Harry Potter. It's just this evil creature that exists to do evil. And if that is the case, then it makes sense that you should always be against that. You should always be against something that's purely evil. But when you realize that a government or a state can just be something that individuals commonly form freely associating together, then you realize that, yeah, that can be used for evil. And that can also be used to defend individual rights, just like You know, any group of people can form a gang and do good with it or form a group and do bad with it. It's it's that same exact concept. And and one more point I want to touch on before I let you go is something you call the anarchist punt. It's another real objection that you'll always get when it comes down to this. Even if you can make all the rational arguments in the world, you'll you'll basically hear it's the Lord Acton quote. You know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are always bad men. So what's your response to that quote? That We just can't form these governments because they're too powerful and people by nature will, will use them in an abusive manner.
1: Yeah, they're, they're, number one, they're, they're indicting human nature. So they have an unjustified, you know, negative view of human nature. And this, this is related to their, how they only view government in terms of what it's doing right now. They're only viewing human nature in terms of what it statistically does right now that they can observe. They don't look at the possibilities of human nature and if, if human beings were, you know, raised in a rational environment and how they would behave. That's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is just it's really an incoherent position, is basically saying that, well, if you if you have power, it will tend to corrupt. Well, it's just a non sequitur and it's almost too silly to refute. It's like, you know, you could you could talk about you know all sorts of powerful things that we have, like nuclear power plants or uh, airplanes or tractors or things. And yeah, you create these things and they, they have a lot of power, and if you're not wise about you know, how you, you, you behave around these things, and you're not careful about how you build these things, they might blow up in your face, and you might get, you know, something bad could happen. So government is a very powerful tool, and yeah, if you design it improperly, then it's going to blow up in your face, and something bad's going to happen, just like we have now. It's Basically, it's a tool that's been, you know, badly put together, and so it's doing the expected thing and, like, blowing up in everybody's faces right now. But that's not an argument against Powerful tools. It's an argument against designing them badly. So, I mean, this is that's their argument. That's what they say, but it's really just silly. They're just being um, they're silly. I, I don't see how they can how they really sustain it seriously. Although I've heard very popular anarchists uh, on YouTube who say exactly this argument with a straight face. So I think it's pretty silly.
0: They sure do. And you know, and I'm glad that you wrote this essay, Shane. I'm glad you're getting a lot of these ideas out there because it's really helping, I think, at least to help me in a lot of ways, clarify a lot of sort of contradictions in my own mind. But it, you know, really, the way you lay it out, I think does make a lot of sense. And I really think it's something that any self-described anarchist, because I think most of the anarchists I encounter, or at least a, a large portion of them, are probably what you would call the semantic anarchists. They're generally principled people. They are, you know, against the violation of individual rights. they are even for forming organizations that can defend individual rights. They're just sort of kind of stuck in that crutch where all we know is of government is of this terrible rights-violating thing, and it just becomes too difficult to really envision it as anything other than that. So, you know, I'm glad you wrote this essay, and I hope people will go out there and find it. So uh, before I let you go, where can people go ahead and find this essay, and where can they find all the other writing you're doing and both of your books as well?
1: Well, if you go to uh, forindividualrights.com, you can find all of it. Uh, this essay is under Essays, a lot of little proviso. It needs some editing. Uh, I wrote it, you know, three years ago, and I just reread it for this interview. And I was like, oh, this this could be said better. I think it's got some good arguments and things, but it can always do better.
0: All right, Shane Whistler, everybody. Again, the essay is called "Against Anarchism." And if you are against anarchism or for anarchism, either way, I highly recommend checking it out because the arguments are certainly ones that should be addressed. And again, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Shane. Thanks, man. Take care. We'll be back after a little break Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the constitution what if there
1: was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to youth through the story of ron paul's amazing life what if this biography breaks down complex concepts like austrian economic theory the dangers of the federal reserve blowback and non-interventionist foreign policy what if i told you this book is real and available what if i told you that school libraries accept donations what if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com/meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving.
0: Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you The Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of The Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. Every Monday we have our longest running feature, Mondays with Murray, named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view along with our little spin as well. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LinesOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money
1: Free. Set money free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. Set money free. With a special forward by Ron Paul. Set money free. It has easy to understand questions and answers. Set money free. Buy set money free set. on Amazon.com.
0: Set, set money
1: free. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free.
0: This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast.
1: Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire.
0: Alright guys, and I hope you all enjoyed my talk with Shane Whistler today. I know we covered a lot there, so I'm going to try to wrap things up quick. But I know I really hope that people out there that self-identify as anarchists, self-identify as minarchists, or even self-identify as fascists—you know—I don't know how you found my podcast, but I'm glad you guys are here too. I hope, however, you self-identify, whatever you call yourself, or maybe you're just a guy interested in libertarian ideas in general and don't even call yourself anything. But the point is, I hope you really take into account, you know, the, the arguments that we've put forward today, the arguments that Shane makes in his essay. And I encourage you to go ahead and give Against Our Anarchism a full read because I think you'll find that when you really break it down to principles and you address the concepts of how people should be allowed to associate with one another, you begin to realize that it's not the particular organization's people form that matters, whether that's a government, whether that's competing defense agencies or what have you. What matters is the manner in which they are formed and the way in which those organizations are utilized you know if one individual is capable of violating rights and capable of defending rights equally so is any other group of individuals so it really always just comes down to the principles of how people are acting towards one another and the nature of the organizations are they coercive are you forcing other people into your jurisdiction or are you just arbitrarily saying we have a government you know these are the areas where we have problems but you know even the defense agency thing, even the anarcho-capitalist defense agency model, that's something that is one method that people could set up as a system. You know, nobody's arguing that that's not allowed. The point is we have to decide as libertarians, as people interested in what are rights and what are crimes, we have to decide what are people allowed to do. And that people are certainly allowed to form an organization, call it a government if they want, and use it to defend rights and defend individual rights and defend natural law. In the manner that deemed appropriate to do so. And, and that's the main point here, the main thing we've been trying to get across here with this podcast today. And I really wanted to bring Shane on and give him a chance to really explain these views that can often be taken the wrong way when we don't sit down and really talk them out together. So I encourage you to stay involved in the conversation. Go over to Shane's website, forindividualrights.com. You can read against anarchism there. If you have thoughts or criticisms, you know, head on over to our social media once again, facebook.com slash lions of liberty. On the Twitter, at Lions of Liberty, drop me an email if you want to give me some direct feedback. It's Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. All we ask is that you keep trying to keep this conversation going, whether it's on social media, whether it's with your friends in your own circles. You know, Just keep that conversation going because that's the only way we're really going to use this quote-unquote infighting to really arrive at principal conclusions. And until next time, all I ask you to keep doing is to live long and live free.